thank you again, Ellen, and the team for leading us. My ears did just prick up a little when Diane was speaking about how the original, shall we say, vision for the move came through a daughter-in-law. It's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Relationships between sons and daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law. I've been greatly blessed in that space. I did hear a very heartwarming story yesterday, though, of a cannibal wedding where the groom toasted his mother-in-law. <laughs> Let's leave that one. We'll cut that out of the video later on. We uh, are going to put a, a statement up on the screen here. I want you to think about just for a few moments. You don't need to talk about it, but uh, give some thought to this. Is this true? One of the most effective strategies for avoiding Jesus is to avoid sin. Just think about what that might mean if you were to discuss it. What does it actually mean? One of the most effective strategies for avoiding Jesus is to avoid sin. Is it, is it possible to actually just hold Jesus at arm's length by being a good person? You know, I'm good enough. I don't do bad stuff. I don't hurt anyone. I don't break the law and I'm okay, God will accept me into heaven. That's a pretty common thought, isn't it? What I want to do over this uh, course of just this morning is think about this theme, running away from God, as we come to this short series from the book of Jonah, because the first couple of verses that we're going to look at are a classic case of someone who ran away from God. This story, the book of Jonah, as I think about it, is often a bit like the book of Judges that we studied together in our church last year, uh, often relegated to the purview of kids' church. You know, stories that are told to our children, but we don't wrestle with them so deeply ourselves. Some of you probably have. But typically, the book of Jonah is just kind of framed as a fable that's landed there in the middle of the Bible, the Old Testament. And it's a funny sort of a story. There's some stuff going on in that story that's just a bit strange. I mean, who ever heard of someone ending up in the belly of a fish? Seriously. Uh, can, we, can we take that seriously? Of course, the corollary to that is whoever heard of someone being crucified, being dead for three days and then being brought back to life? Whoever heard of that? So we shouldn't um, limit God's capacity uh, as we think about two verses in the book of Jonah that speak about the fish. We're going to look at the first three verses though today, so it's really just by way of introduction. Let me just throw that up onto the screen. We'll read that together and then pray and then dig into this text and see what it is that God's going to say to us today here in 2023 in our context through this ancient word because we believe here in the context of our church at Wodonga District Baptist Church that God speaks through his word, through all of his word, not just some of the parts that we like but through all of it. And so we are going to spend a little bit of time in this rather unusual part of the Old Testament as we start the year. But let's read here. This is the opening couple of verses of Jonah, Jonah 1, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went on board and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. 
There's the frame for the start of the book. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you will open our eyes, open our hearts, open our spiritual ears to what your spirit is going to say to us as a church and individually today through this word. We thank you that it has been preserved for us through the centuries. And there's so much in this little book, so much that you're going to speak to us. And so we open ourselves to that today. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to learn. And we do pray, even as we have children in the midst of us too, there'll be things that they can pick up from this text we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, although uh, this book's often treated, as I say, as little more than a kind of a fable or a fairy story or an, a, an amusing inclusion in the midst of the Old Testament, it's actually a very, very interesting piece of literature, a very deep book indeed, as you will see as we unpack it. We have a picture of Jonah, who is a staunchly religious believer, whose attitude is challenged uh, when he looks at the people around him. One of the things that one of the themes that this book does pick up is this attitude that Jonah has to people who are different to him. And so, as we reflect on that, what about our attitude towards people who are different to us? This book uh, obviously speaks about God's love for people and communities who are very different to us. In a word for our time, and I'd love to take some time to unpack this some more on another occasion, this book challenges what I'm going to call toxic nationalism. Now, this idea that our nation is supreme, premier amongst all others to the exclusion of other peoples in our world, and so we rally around us leaders and politicians who are going to fight the cause and make us great. Uh, that kind of stuff's not that healthy, and this book challenges that. One of the obvious themes that runs through this book is um, how to be on mission in the world, uh, but at the same time, a warning against the subtle idolatry that sometimes gets in the way of our mission to the world, the things that we worship uh, that get in the way of us reaching out into our community. And one of the keys that we're going to use as we look at this book of Jonah is move away from it just being a story to actually being a work of theology. In other words, a book that tells us something about God. Because as you have a look at this book, you will see, uh, and we'll make it clear as we go through, that when Jonah is doing his stuff, he wants a certain kind of God to show up. He wants a God who will bless the good people and punish the bad people. That's the kind of God we all want, isn't it? The God who will defeat the enemies and look after us. The problem in this book is um, the real God keeps inconveniently turning up and Jonah can't figure out how can God be at once a God of mercy and a God of justice? How do you actually marry those two things? How can God be one who will do justice but also demonstrate mercy? Jonah, clearly in this book, if you've read it and you'll know, he wants to see the, the judgment of God visited upon the Ninevites. And God says, I want you to go and preach to them. Well, hang on a second. How can you marry those two things, mercy and justice? Very, very hard to get your head around. If we read the Bible chronologically... Um, it actually helps us answer this question. The book of Jonah doesn't answer the question, but the Bible answers this question because if you read the book chronologically from start through to the cross, you will discover exactly how God does marry those two things together, how God can be a God of justice and mercy. Have a look at the cross. That's where it's demonstrated most perfectly. For their sin was dealt with. 
and God's grace flows. You see how it all comes together. It's one of the geniuses of the Christian Bible. Well, let's have a look at the text. It's an unusual start, too, if you have a look at this. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. There's nothing unusual about that. If you have a look at the Old Testament, there's a number of prophets to whom the word of the Lord came. Nothing new about that. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. This time, though, there's something different. And if you have a look at the text, you'll actually be able to spot it because on this occasion, uh, Jonah, unlike the other prophets, is actually asked to go, not just to speak. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Lots of prophets, prophets like Amos or Jeremiah or Isaiah, were called by God to speak. And they kind of threw bombs at some of those nations. You know, this is an oracle against Edom. This is an oracle against Nineveh. This is an oracle against Egypt and so on. Jonah was asked to go. It's a whole different level, isn't it? Different kind of commitment that God's asking from Jonah. We don't actually get a lot of information from the book of Jonah about who Jonah was either, and we would assume then that the people who originally received this text did know who he was. There's a little bit of information that we can discover from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and that tells us that he was a prophet. Now, let me just throw up another slide here that will help us. Jonah was a prophet at the time when the kingdom of Israel as a whole kingdom was split in two, and the map that's there on the wall will give you a bit of an idea of how it was split. Judah in the south, the tribes of Israel in the north. Competing kings, competing centres of worship, competing interests. Um, Jonah was a prophet who was serving in this northern kingdom at the time of Jeroboam II. Now, uh, if you know anything about Jeroboam II, it's enough to know that he was called an evil king in the eyes of the Lord. Not a good guy. But even so, through this time, God actually expanded the borders of Israel and Jonah prophesied in, uh, in two kings that that would be the case, uh, that the borders would basically go to what they originally were under the United Kingdom under Solomon. Uh, and so Jonah was a very uh, important prophet in the sense that he was part of what was going on under Jeroboam too. We can assume, I think reasonably safely, that, uh, that Jonah was a very nationalistic, loyal, uh, full-on man for Israel. And concurrently that would mean, as he looked around at the enemies, he was a very loyal, full-on man against those enemies. So Jonah would have been there, you know, marching down the streets when they were having their parades. Jonah would have been one of the ones who was cheering when the boundaries were expanded. Jonah probably uh, supported the military campaigns under Jeroboam II to expand their boundaries. He prophesied as much. So just hold that in your mind for a second when you think about Jonah. Right? He was very focused on his people, very loyal to his people, uh, very focused on their well-being and, uh, and what was happening. How do you think he would have felt then when the word of the Lord came to him to go to the enemy city and preach against it? We've got to understand a little bit about Nineveh too. And I'm mindful this morning that we haven't got kids' church and so I'm going to go a little lightly in this space as we describe the Assyrians. Uh, because the Assyrian people who 
who owned the city of Nineveh. Nineveh actually became their capital a little after Jonah. Uh, the Assyrian people uh, were not nice. <laughs> That's a very mild way of saying uh, they behaved atrociously. They were known throughout the world, throughout the, the world at the time, as being amongst the cruelest, most debased, merciless, uh, treacherous, ferocious and degrading people that you are likely to encounter. If you want to go and do a little bit of research, uh, let me tell you, if you do, it, it will turn your stomach. They didn't just kill their enemies, they tortured their enemies. And they did it in a manner that was systematically designed to create fear, terror, horror, uh, in all of those words. They were your enemy's worst enemy, so to speak. Absolutely awful. Uh, they went further than that. They preserved some of their atrocities um, in art, and or just you can use your imagination what's going on here with those enemies. They just did awful stuff to the people that they went up against. They engaged in physical and psychological warfare. Now, at the time of Jonah, they were not as strong as they were at other times, but you get a bit of a sense of the kind of people that they were. So on the one hand, we have Jonah, Jonah who is absolutely 100% on about Israel and, and you know championing his people. On the other hand, we have the Ninevites who are the worst kind of people that you can imagine in terms of the debauchery and the awfulness of what they did. How do you think Jonah would feel being asked by God to go against the great city of Nineveh and preach against it? If you were Jonah, what would you do? On the one hand, it seems like quite an attractive idea, doesn't it? You know, go and preach against your enemies, except the problem would be um, you go and stand in the middle of these enemies, what are they likely to do to you? You're going to last about three-eighths of one second. And even if you did go and do that and you went back, very, very likely, you would go back to your own people and they would say, treachery, and be stoned by his own people. So he was in a very difficult place in some respects. So what does Jonah do? Well, instead of going east, he went west. Instead of going overland, he went overseas. Instead of going to the city, he went to the ends of the world. And on the evidence available to us, we probably shouldn't be too critical. But here's the thing, even though we can only guess at what Jonah was thinking at that stage, the chances are he was thinking, you know, God, you've said to me, go and preach to these Ninevites. This mission that you've given me has zero chance of success. There is no way they're going to listen to me. There is no way that's going to work. There's no way I'm even going to get a hearing. Can you imagine, God, if I go into the middle of the city of Nineveh and stand up in the marketplace and say, guess what, everyone, I've got a message from God. What are they going to do? No way that's going to work. In fact, there are some scholars, a small number, not the majority, I should hasten to say, a small number of scholars who think that the, uh, the prophecy of Nahum actually happened before Jonah's journey to Nineveh. Uh, this is what Nahum had said about that city, the city of Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Let's hope we never hear those words said of us. They are strong words. And if that timeline is true, and it may or it may not be, and if Jonah was 
familiar with those words, it's fair enough to be thinking, well, what's the point? You know, God's going to destroy them anyway. What's the point of me going and doing that? Now, there's a chance and a very strong chance that Nahum actually came after Jonah. But even so, this kind of sentiment's probably already existing anyway. Why would God want to show mercy to enemies who were so cruel? There's the question Jonah's asking. Why would God want to show mercy to enemies who were so cruel? And here's the mistake that Jonah made, and I want you to hear this because we'll develop this thought a little bit. Uh, just because he couldn't see any good purpose behind God's actions, he concluded that there couldn't be any good purpose behind God's actions, and so he took matters into his own hands. Jonah's mistake was he'd looked at the situation and he said, I can't see how God could use this, so therefore God isn't going to be using this. And that's not unlike the kind of approach we sometimes come with, isn't it? If we can't see immediately how God might use a situation, we conclude that, well, therefore God isn't using that situation. Last Sunday, uh, just by way of example, I'll give you a little story. The week before last week, during the week, um, I was back in the office after having a lovely break and just kind of sorting stuff out and just had this sense that there was someone, and I won't name the person, that I needed to visit, and it kind of thought, oh, yeah, I should go and see so-and-so. And it kind of came up a couple of times, I should go and see so-and-so. I'd love to say, after all of these years you'd start to be able to recognise clearly when the Spirit of God is speaking, but there are times where you think, oh, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, and I should go and see this person. But actually, um, there's some other stuff I need to prioritise at the moment. I probably could do it on the way home because it's kind of coming from where I am. I might do it then, but then it got late and I didn't do it, and so on the story goes. And guess what? Came to church on Sunday, met that person, heard the story and thought, my goodness, if only I'd visited that time through the week. But I'd made the same mistake Jonah had made. I'd looked at a situation, considered the circumstances, thought, well, I can't see any good reason why God would want me to do it, therefore there mustn't be one. Hello? Now, I'll tell you that story. Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, just to remind, remind, remind myself that I'm very human. But um, because this whole business of listening to the leading of God uh, actually happens in the very bread and butter issues of life. The stuff, you know, Jonah's stuff, that's big, that's really big stuff. But we face these kinds of things all the time. We face them in the moment when you're sitting with your spouse in the doctor's surgery and the doctor comes and says, look, some, there's some anomalies that have come up in the blood test. We're going to have to do some more tests, but it's not looking very positive. And you're saying, well, what? how could God use this? I can't see any way that God could use this. And so the conclusion we might naturally come to is God won't be able to use this. But is that true? Hardly. We might have gone to all the trouble to apply for a new job, you know, just decided to get out of the one that I was in. I've been driving an hour to work. This new job's only five minutes away. <coughs> it fits my CV perfectly. Uh, it's time. Everything, everything's right. And then they ring up and say, thanks for your application, but uh, we've pointed someone else. What's going on? Has God dropped the ball there? Has God gone to sleep uh, again 
you know, we thought we had it all lined up. How could God's plan be for this? God doesn't have a plan. It might be in that season of life watching a teenager reject the values and morals that you've tried so hard to instill and they just kind of throw them off like shedding clothes. Where's God in the midst of that? You know, God doesn't seem to be at work, therefore God doesn't have a plan. God's dropped the ball. God's uh, left the building, so to speak. And this is the conclusion that Jonah came to. He couldn't see how this could possibly be part of God's plan, therefore it mustn't have been. And then I've got an excuse to run in the opposite direction. Rather interestingly, if we go right back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Adam and Eve concluded exactly the same thing. God said to them, do not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. If you do, you will die. They looked at that tree. They saw it looked good. They couldn't think of a reason why God said no. So therefore, there mustn't be a reason. Let's go and have a feed. And you know how that ended for them. They did not trust God to have their best interests at heart, so they took their interests to their, into their own hands and they ate. So what's the antidote? Well, the antidote, the way of addressing this problem is to turn to the New Testament and read a passage like Romans 8.28. We reflected on this yesterday at Anne's funeral. Uh, this passage says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. Even when we can't see it, God's at work. Even when we can't sense what's going on, God's at work. Just because obedience doesn't seem to make sense in the circumstances doesn't mean that it becomes optional. But in Jonah's case, Jonah ran. And didn't he run? in the opposite direction. He is in some senses a lot like um, people that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 29. People who run away from God as fast as they can. Paul says, you know, people who have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and others, they're just running away from God as fast as they possibly can. People who want nothing to do with God. I'm sure you've met people like that. As soon as you start a God conversation with them, don't want to know about that stuff, not interested, absolutely off radar. That's one kind of running away from God, but there is actually another kind of running away from God. Paul actually describes it in Romans chapter 2. And uh, it's similar to what Jonah did, if you're familiar with the story, because at first Jonah ran in the opposite direction, eventually actually went and did what he was asked to do, begrudgingly. But in Romans chapter 2, as Paul speaks to Jewish people and says to them, you know what, you have actually, you have been so good at conforming to the law, you've been so concerned about the food laws and the circumcision laws and all this other stuff, you've done all these things to make yourself look righteous, but in the process you've held God and length. That's actually another way of running away from God. Another way of holding God at arm's length. And so in Romans chapter 3, Paul concludes there's no one righteous, not even one. The ones who are running away from God pell-mell as fast as they can, turning their back, they're, they're not righteous. The ones who are holding on to the works of the law, trying to do good stuff and just, you know, be righteous in their own eyes, they're not righteous either. 
There's actually a classic um, example of this story, if you'd like to have a look with me at, uh, at this in Luke chapter 15. It's the story, I don't know what to call this story actually. Uh, typically we call it the parable of the lost son. It should perhaps be the parable of the lost father or something else. But there's two sons in chapter 15 of Luke and there's an awful lot of parallels between this story and the story of Jonah. Because in the story of the two sons, you know how that rolls. Um, two, two sons working for their father. One son says, I want my inheritance now, Dad. Give me what you owe me. And translated, if you like, in Hebrew, uh, it basically was saying this, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance, and off he went, running as fast as he could in the opposite direction. Away he went, not trusting the goodness of the father. You know what happened to him. He took off to a foreign country. He lived a high life. He ran out of cash. He ended up in a pretty treacherous situation. Uh, but standing at the back was the older son, uh, and he played his game quite differently. I always had a lot of empathy for him in some ways, perhaps because I'm an older son. Um, and, you know, as a young person, I think, gosh, he, he, got a hard, he got a hard deal there, really. But listen, this is what's going on in this passage. This, uh, this older boy is actually behaving exactly the same as the other one. The first son put his father under obligation by saying, I want my stuff now. The older son actually put his father under obligation by saying, I will do everything that I need to. And so the older son, what did he do? He used to get up early in the morning to milk the cows. And as his father was getting a bit older, it became harder for his dad to do that, so he took that job on. He was the one who looked after the crop. He was the one who raised the stock. He was the one who called in the, um, the uh, what's the, you call them, the um, elders, the stock agent. He called the stock agent and he said, look at these cattle. That calf is just fattening up beautifully. Everything was going well because eventually he knew that if he did all the right things, he was actually putting his father under obligation to pass on the inheritance to him. Was he doing it out of the goodness of his heart? No, he was doing it to put the father under obligation. And so we know that is true because when the younger son turns up, the father runs out, greets him. What does he do? He acts in a manner that actually enrages the older son. He takes that fattened calf that the guy from Elders said, you're going to get a lot of money for, and he slaughters it. He acted exactly the opposite way to what the, young, uh, the older son thought he should. The older son had done everything to put his father under a certain obligation. When the father didn't do that, what did he do? He spat the dummy. Now, he had planned for when Popsicle passed away, everything was going to be his. And when Popsicle didn't do it, he was enraged by it. You see the parallels in that passage with uh, the passage from Jonah. Who of those two brothers trusted the love of the father? The answer is actually neither of them. They were both working to make sure they sorted life out for themselves. Both were trying to escape his control. And we see this in the life and actions of Jonah, both when he ran to Tarshish, <clears throat> but also when he came back and preached in Nineveh. And this is where we probably need to pause and hold up a mirror to ourselves. So let me read a, an application for you from uh, 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 Timothy Keller, who made this point. He said, we think 
that if we are religiously observant, virtuous and good, then we've paid our dues, as it were. Now God can't ask anything of us because God owes us. He's obligated to answer our prayers and bless us. This is not moving towards him in grateful joy or glad surrender and love, but it is instead a way of controlling God and as a result keeping him at arm's length. Both of these two ways of escaping God assume the lie that we cannot trust God's commitment to our good. We think we have to force God to give us what we need. Even if we're outwardly obeying God, we are not doing it for his sake but for ours. If we are seeking to comply with his rules, God does not appear to be treating us as we feel we deserve, then the veneer of morality and righteousness can collapse overnight. The inward distancing from God that has been going on for a long time becomes an outward, obvious rejection. We become furious with God and we walk away. That's telling, isn't it? And I was, I was thinking about that last couple of statements, this inward distancing from God that has been going on for a long time becomes outward obvious rejection. I can't help but wonder, you know, whether some of the folks that we've seen over the years who have turned their back on faith have actually been in that very place. You know, working hard to try and obligate God to do what he wants when he doesn't do it, well, turn their back and walk away. The problem isn't God, is it? The problem is actually what we believe about God. And as I said at the start of the message, Jonah's problem was he wanted a particular kind of a God. He wanted a God who would turn up and thrash his enemies. And when the real God kept on turning up, it was a little bit inconvenient for him. One of the games, um, and, and some of you will resonate with this, one of the great games uh, I like to play with the grandchildren is hide and seek. You guys do that around your place, some of you? It's actually quite good fun when they're small because they've got no idea how to play the game. <laughs> so you can hide behind a door and they won't find you because they can't see more than this distance, I don't think. You know, walk in, walk around, see, no, not in here. But it actually gets harder as they get older for two reasons. One is they learn to hide much more effectively, but also they learn to seek more effectively too. And it's difficult when you're someone of my size to hide anyway. <laughs> There's not many, not many places in our place, not many corners in our house that I can actually squeeze into. And so the game's, you know, it's over in absolutely no time. Jonah thought that by running away and hiding, he could actually avoid God's commission, that God would find somebody else. And that's by disappearing off the face of the earth as it was, Jonah would be liberated from the responsibility that God had given him. But God in his mercy came looking for him. And God is very good at finding. If you're a prodigal like Jonah, either running away like Jonah did when he headed for Tarshish, or running away from God by trying to dictate to God, this is what you should do, this is how I want you to be, then hear these words of both grace and mercy from Psalm 139. Let's conclude with these words. We've got it on the screen so you can follow. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me 
your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. God looks for us wherever we are. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are uh, you're such an awesome, wonderful God who does seek us. And we've all been guilty of running from you. Some of us remember a season in life where we ran in the opposite direction. And in your goodness and your grace, you reached out your hands and you have clutched us out of the depths of darkness. There's others of us, Lord, who perhaps have been part of the life of your church for years and yet run from you by trying to be a bit like that older son, doing the right things and in so put you under obligation. God, free us, we pray, from that prison that we have been into. But there's nothing that we can do that will put you under obligation. Our righteousness, as the scripture says, is like filthy rags. Help us, we pray, to take on the righteousness of Christ. Lord God, we thank you again for this word from the book of Jonah. Help us today, we pray, to run to you and not away from you and be embraced in your love for us. Be ready to accept your commission to us and respond in obedience to your life in us. We ask in your name. Amen.